Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. You can stay seated for this reading. But God's Word tells us this. While they were listening to this, He went on to tell them a parable. Because He was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you, because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. No matter what kind of job you might be in, whether you are stocking shelves at Walmart or you are analyzing data sheets at UVA Community Credit Union, whatever it might be, if you get a memo from your boss and the memo says, hey, you know what, workers, um, you know, I'm going to be out of town next week on a business trip, you stop right there, you don't really read the rest of the email, what's one of the first thoughts that comes to your mind? In your sinful flesh. Anybody. What's one of the first thoughts that comes to your mind? Just be honest. What was that? I can relax. Yep, that's exactly what I was looking for. All right, now some of you, you might be holier than that, and you, that just thought that never crosses your mind. And, I mean, to be frank, I was raised, you know, in a home where you work hard for the Lord, irregardless of who's watching over you directly. But even still, there's a part of me that even if it's trivial, I just think, oh, well, then next week, we got vacation week next week. If my boss isn't going to be here, I know some of you have had that thought, at least, just even if you don't act it out, you just entertain it in your mind for five seconds, then you go on working hard with your day. Now for us Christians, who is our true superior, our true master? Right there, that Jonathan pointed up, right? Correct, it's Jesus, right? If you didn't catch that, Jesus is our true superior, our true master, our king. Now it's quite obvious though that Jesus is not physically walking around in the world. If you will, he is out of the office, physically speaking, all right? And if Jesus were here physically, if he were here living alongside of you, if he were here this morning, sitting among us, don't you think you would change your life just a little bit? You would be a little more gracious with the words you speak. You would be a little more intentional about sharing the gospel. 
You might put a little more money in the offering plate if he was watching you, you know, your every move, all right? But he's not here physically with us. And in a much more grave, real sense, since he's not physically over us, physically near us, the temptation is for you and I to coast, to just walk out, just to exist, just to get by, to waste time, to put forth the most minimal effort on the job. It's a very real human temptation. It's our sinful hearts pulling away from striving to please our master. In our text this morning, what we see is Jesus explaining to his followers what life looks like in the in-between time. Right? This is a constant theme in the Gospels and the entire Bible. Jesus came in the past. Jesus left. He's coming again in the future. What on earth do we do for our 50, 60, 70 years that we have here in this world? And in Miss Catherine Black's case, 95 beautiful years. What are we supposed to do in this in-between time? And Jesus speaks a parable to his followers to remind them about this is what you're called to do. This is who you're called to be. This is how you were called to live. If I were to bore all of this down to one thing, I want you to remember today, it's this. As we wait for Jesus to come back, as we wait for Jesus the King to come back, we are called to work hard while we wait. Work hard while you wait. So one point today. Let's walk through the text and see what that means for us. Beginning in verse 11. While they were listening to this, were listening to Jesus, talk about salvation, talk to Zacchaeus, talk to, uh, about how he came to seek and to save the lost, while his people, while his followers were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So, Jesus is the Messiah. If you don't know what that means, he's the Christ. If you don't know what that means, he's the anointed one. If you don't know what that means, he's the expected one who came to save his people from their sin, who came to make all wrongs right, who came to deliver and free and bless and protect his people. He is the long-awaited king whom the Jews had desired to come to set up his earthly kingdom so that they could worship God without any kind of inhibition whatsoever. And the text tells us Jesus was near Jerusalem at the epicenter of Jewish life. And the people, his followers, but even just the people who were on the kind of the fringes had a cursory eye view with what Jesus was doing. Collectively, they all thought, right there in the text, the kingdom, they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now, what they thought was Jesus <clears throat> getting closer right in the capital. They thought Jesus, he displayed so many miracles beforehand walked on water, calmed the seas, fed 5,000, healed uh, demoniacs, opened the eyes of the blind, raised the dead, back to life. So many immense displays of power. They thought that this Jesus was now going to unleash the full display of his power to overcome and to topple the Roman government. To get rid of all of the evil rulers above them. All the oppressors above them. They thought the kingdom of God was going to come at once. They thought in terms of a military takeover. But Jesus here, he tells this parable to do kind of two big things. Correct their faulty thinking, but also call them to right action. And when Jesus speaks, that's what he does a lot of the time. In the Gospels, but even the entire Word of God. 
we hear the word to, one, correct our faulty thinking, and two, to call us to right action, how we are then should live in light of his truth. So Jesus is saying that here, in essence, you know, my kingdom, it's not coming the way you think. It's not coming immediately right now, fully, but in the meantime, this is how you should live. Look at verse 12. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. You might be wondering, what's going on there? What does that mean? What was this talk about a man of noble birth going to a distant country to become king and then to return back to be the king? What do you make sense of that? Well, Jesus is speaking in terms of what the Jewish people would have understood at the time. So how many of you remember Herod the Great? Any of you don't know who that is? How do you? Who's Herod the Great? You're nodding your head, Savannah. I'll call you out. Correct. Herod the Great is the big bad guy in the Christmas account. All right? When we read about Herod in the Gospels, that's Herod's son. So Herod the Great, he's the big bad guy. But him, uh, he was the king of Judea. He was known as the king of Judea. Also known as the king of the Jews at the time. So uh, Herod, he... He had ruled over the Judean region for some time. He had squashed his opponents. He had pleased the Roman superiors who were in power. And he was functionally serving as the ruler, as the governor, as the king. But eventually, as time progressed, he traveled to Rome to be crowned officially as king and then to return back to the region of Judea to then rule over the people with the full weight, the full seal of approval from the Roman government, right? And this is what Jesus is alluding to here. As a man, noble birth, the exact same thing. Now, if you didn't catch this while reading the parable, right, parables stand for something. You can't press every detail too firm, too hard, but Jesus is the man of noble birth. He is the certain noble man, right? Jesus is the king of the earth. He is the king of the universe, but Jesus is going to leave the earth he, I mean, he did. We're speaking past tense. But Jesus is going to leave the earth, travel to a distant country, which is heaven, and then he's going to come back one day with the full weight, the full approval, the full authority of the kingdom of God. But in the meantime, he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So the king calls ten, ten of his servants to himself gives them both a gift of money, but also responsibility. Right? Notice it, the text says he gave them money. So the, the minus there, if you're wondering what is a mina, it's about three months' wages. Say you make uh, $50,000, yeah, $50, $60,000. That's around $12,000, $12,000, $13,000 roughly. Okay? So we gave each of the servants about $12,000 right? in terms of average American income today. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now, do you notice the preciseness of what Jesus is saying here? The preciseness of his wording. Jesus here does not stress the outcome. He does not stress the results. He doesn't focus on the fruit of their endeavors. And, you know, for you and I today, it's not about how many conversions you take part in in your life or how many explicit people you say come to Christ. It's not about how many baptisms you might oversee. It's not about how big the church grows. It's a matter of 
How faithful are you with what God has given you? How faithful are you with what God has given you? Put this money to work. Engage in business. Do business with this until I come back. I love what one commentator said. He said, uh, you know, the followers here, the servants, and, and for us today, they're not instructed or expected to change the world, but simply to be faithful in Jesus' absence with the gift given. And while all might seem well, right, the coronation time, it's a time of celebration, a time of festivity, as England is about to do, but this, the sun isn't shining too brightly on this occasion because in verse 14, you get that sour note added into the parable. His subjects hated him, sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, we don't know if literally every single person in that realm literally hated the king. We don't know that, but the plain language, the plain reading, it's quite clear that a lot of people, a lot of the common people hated the king. And it's not just you, you're not a fan of him. It's the point where there's vocal disapproval to the point where they sent messengers after him out of the country to go tell them how much they hated him, how much they disapproved of his time and of his reign over them. But Then we see in verse 15 the true return of the king before Tolkien took that for the Lord of the Rings, right? The return of the king, verse 15. He was made king, however, and returned home. And I like the way the NIV phrases that, right? He was made king, however, and then returned home. It's kind of, you know, reflecting on that, I thought, I thought of this, right? It doesn't matter what the subjects might be saying. It doesn't matter what the people's response is. We... As human beings, we cannot stop the purposes and plan of God. It doesn't matter how much we bicker, how much we resist him, how much we refuse or whine against him. Nothing, and Satan and all the demonic forces, nothing can stop the divine activity of God. He is king. He's going to come back as king. Nothing can change that. So he was made king, however, and returned home. So he called some of this, well, the ten servants to himself, and right here, he is, into, he is curious, what is the fruit of your labor? What have you been doing in the meantime? And, and similarly, in Matthew 25, verse 19, Jesus told another parable. And there in that verse, it says, After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Just an interesting little phrase there. After a long time. Might be, might be indicative for us in terms of when is Jesus coming back? After a long time. So, first servant comes up. Verse 16. First one came and said, Sir, your mind has earned ten more. Basically, I earned, out of you know, different investments, different things, I earned 125000 on what you gave me. A thousand percent growth on what you gave me. Very well done, King said. Another servant came up. You know, um, King, my mind earned 500% growth. $60,000. Very well done. You were faithful with this money, so now you're going to be entrusted with something much more great and bigger, more complex cities. You take charge of ten cities. You take charge of five cities. It's as if if you're working as a contractor and 
Let's say you design the logo of a company or of the church, right? Uh, we had, uh, had our logo redone a few years ago. You, f- you prove faithful in just redesigning the logo as a contractor. The boss then says, all right, I want you to come work for me now as the manager of the entire digital arts department. But just a massive upgrade, a massive promotion. It's the general truth for you and I. If you're faithful with a little, God will entrust you with more. If you are faithful with a little, God will entrust you with more. But to piggyback off of what Uncle Ben said in Spider-Man, it's slightly different. Right? With great blessing comes great responsibility. Okay? So the more God blesses you, the more that will be required of you. But then, the sour note steps in again in verse 20. Another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mind. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. This man, this servant, he didn't put his money to work. He put his money to sleep. Instead of actively using it and and getting a return on investment, he did nothing with it. It sounds as though he just put minimal effort. He did literally absolutely nothing with it. And as Jesus explains in verses 22 and 23, at the bare minimum, the bare minimum, you could have put it in a savings account and you could have earned, what, 0.005%, seems like sometimes in our bank accounts. You could have earned me 10 more cents. You could have earned something, but you did nothing with my money. All you did was stuff it in your sock drawer. You call that faithfulness? You call that hard work? And then, it's kind of interesting though. The, The absurd action from the servant it stems from the bad beliefs he had about the king. The wrong beliefs he had about the king. Right? I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You are a hard man. You're harsh. You're severe. But remember the king. This is a tiny little parable. We can't get a full character description of who this king is. But just back up a few verses. Does the king sound or look like a harsh man? No. Right before, what did he do? As he was doing all of his coronation stuff, he called ten of his servants to himself and did what? He gave them money. He didn't have to do that. He did not owe these servants any money. He wanted to bless these servants, give them an opportunity to grow, to mature, to thrive, to prosper, to prove their faithfulness so that they could then be blessed with more. Very gracious, very compassionate, even in these few verses here. But this third servant, the last servant, he had bad beliefs about the king. He's harsh, he's, he's bitter, he's angry. And this is why it's so important for you and I to continually have our thoughts shaped by the Word of God concerning who God is. It is human error, human temptation. Our default position is to always think wrong about God. To just think completely warped thoughts about who He is Right? Some people might think, you know, God is just all love. Therefore, anything goes. That's a very wrong attitude. On the opposite end of the spectrum, God anger and fury and wrath. Therefore, He is entirely hell-bent on destroying everything. Again, that's a limited perspective as well. We need a full picture of who the King is, and the only way we can get that picture is by being immersed in the truth. That's why, in part, we gather week after week after week to know His Word, 
to know the truth, to have our faulty minds corrected with the truth and with the light. So, right, that's, that's the poor response of the servant. I'm going to briefly address verse 27. I think that one, that one's definitely, you know, I was thinking in my notes as I was studying this passage, initially I just do observation. I don't look at commentaries or anything else. I just look at the text and just, what do I see here? And a couple of my notes I put, why is verse 14 and verse 27 in here? Because you take those kind of verses out, that subtext, and everything kind of seems decent. It's this kind of this nice rosy colored parable. But God is God. Right? God reveals himself as who he is. Verse 27 is here because it reveals to us a part of who he is. Now there's no hiding the fact that verse 27 is harsh or sounds harsh because it is harsh. And I, I just want to say a few things there to help you make sense of that. Right? The severity of, the, of their punishment. Notice who it is. It's not explicit that the servant is the one who is punished. But the text says, those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them. So explicitly, it's referring to the, the citizens, the subjects, the common people who hated him in verse 14. Those are the ones who receive this punishment, this death sentence, literally. And, you know, the reality is there, there are many people in life who simply do not want to live under the rule of God. They do not want to live underneath the rule of Jesus as king. Through their sinful living, their sinful, even sometimes verbally, they'll say it verbally to God, I hate you. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want you near me. Keep your distance. I don't want you to be king over my life. And, you know, the reality is, if that is your attitude, if you have that persistent sin of rebellion and unbelief, eventually, and this is very sad, Romans 1 details this in very clear language, eventually God will say, have it your way. If you do not want to live underneath my mercy, have it your way. If you don't want to receive my grace and walk in my ways, the straight and narrow path, have it your way. And it's not as though that's restricting, that's limiting, that's you know, very binding in a, in a bad, constrictive way. Walking on the path is the only path of safety because on the edge is a straight thousand foot drop off the cliffside. Jesus invites us to walk in his ways, walk in his word, follow him because following him leads to life, leads to joy, leads to eternal love and happiness. And eventually, if you say, I don't want any of that, I don't want to submit my life to you, I don't want to walk in your word, have it your way. And that's what hell and death and wrath is. It's God handing us over to our sin. As Roman 1 makes explicitly clear. And the reality is, the choice is ours. Right? God is God. He does not change. But we see here, there's different responses. Some people acknowledge God, you're good. You're gracious. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be faithful with what you've given me. But some people have a very, very warped perspective of him. And if you had bad thoughts, bad theology, your life will likewise be bad. And the choice is ours. The choice is ours. Are we going to honor Christ? Are we going to be faithful with what he's given us? 
Or are we going to squander it? Are we going to waste it? Are we going to do nothing and sit idly by? Work hard while you wait. As we wait for Jesus to return, we are called to work hard. How do we work hard? What do you mean by that? Well, be a steward. Work hard as God's steward. What do you mean by that? I do not mean steward little, right? Steward with the W. Be a steward of what he's given you. Everything that you have in your life, your physical body, your money, your home, your kids, your friends, everything is a gift from God. It's his, ultimately, steward what he's entrusted to your care with the best of your ability. There are many realms of this, right? I mentioned a few of them. All right, your relationships, your spouse, your children, your careers, your physical bodies, your money, your home, your car, your talents, your time, your energy, everything God has given you is his. Steward what he has given you well. But let me end on this and, and kind of tie it all home. What is the most precious gift that he has given you? Right? There's a few kind of answers you might think of. Right? But, but think about it. What's the most precious, valuable gift God has given you? Soul. That, that, that's close to what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of something a little different. That, there it is. Well, close. Uh, so, salvation and then life. So, eternal life, I would say, and then salvation, right? The gospel. Right? The gospel message. As Second Timothy 2.14 calls it, the good deposit. Right? The gospel is this precious gift that God has given us. Both, both the message, but also internally, right? For, for those of us who've received the gospel, it's in us, it's inside of us, it's in our hearts. It's precious. There's so many ways to steward God's gifts, but the one I want to hammer on and just end on is this. How are you stewarding the gift of the gospel? How are you stewarding it? How are you managing it? How are you investing it? How are you putting it out there so that others might be blessed and they might multiply? How are you doing with that? Right? And with investments, as you know, any investment, there's risk. And there's a lot of risk when it comes to sharing the gospel, putting it out there. There's the risk of rejection, alienation, mockery. There's the risk of our pride being attacked because we, we feel like we should have it all together. We should know it all. And if they ask a question I don't know, I'm going to be afraid. I'm not going to know how to respond. Therefore, I'm just not going to say anything because I don't want to deal with that kind of um, fear. And that right. And, and some of you might be thinking, yeah, I know, Pastor. I know, Jimmy D. I know I need to be sharing the gospel. But what? Three action points to empower you on your journey. They're brief. They're simple. Number one, what would you say? What would you say? How do you talk about the gospel? How, how would you share it with somebody? I, I'm thinking, I saw, saw Dennis out of the corner of my eye, and I was thinking of our trip to Mexico, and I, I think I shared a little bit of this, but um, we, him and I were on the same rows, three seats, three, aisle three, and he was on the window, I was on aisle, and then there was just one poor guy who was right in the middle, and you know, because we knew each other, it's just kind of this, it could, could be awkward for him, but eventually we got to talking, and uh, he, he asked, you know, um, you know, what kind of work do you do, what are you into? I said, yeah, I'm a pastor, and he said, so what got you into that? Like, why did you choose that career for you? And that just, to me, that just opened the door. I'm like, are you ready for it? In my mind, I was like, are you ready for this? I'm going to unleash as much truth as I can right here and not just say, so um, 
I shared the gospel, my testimony. Basically, I've received the gospel because it's so precious and beautiful. I want to share it with others. Kind of just boil it in short. And I explained what the gospel was and stuff. But then um, Dennis and I kind of tag-teamed in the ring. And then Dennis shared his personal testimony, which I'm not going to steal their thunder right there. There might be another opportunity. But, um, you know, just shared his personal testimony, which in short, which is like all of us, if you've been saved. It's, this was my life before. Jesus saved me. This is who I am today. Right? What would you say? It doesn't need to be grand. It doesn't need to be, you, you don't even need to have an open Bible. It's good to have it. You don't need to, right? Share your testimony. Share the basics of the gospel. This is who I was in my sin. This is how helpless I was, how hopeless I was. Jesus came. Jesus saved me. Jesus did all this for me. This is who I am today. I'm not perfect by any means, but I'm a lot better off than what I was beforehand. That's the gospel. Simple question. What would you say? What would you say to someone when the opportunity arises? Number two, how's your wallet? How's your wallet when it comes to this? I think I've heard John Piper say before, when it comes to missions, there's only three options. It's go, support, or disobey. Right? Those are the only three options we have as Christians. Go, support, disobey. And we're not all called to go overseas, but we are all called to support. Right? So how are you supporting? How are you supporting those preaching the gospel around the world? I would encourage you, support ministries, support missionaries financially who are preaching the true gospel of Jesus. And you, I hope you know my heart. I do not say this every week. All right? So do not get on me for this, at least right now. But I would say begin at home. Okay? Begin here at Hillsboro. If you believe, I hope you see, like we preach the word. I preach the word. We believe the gospel. We believe the truth. We try our best to proclaim it and promulgate it around the world. Here in Crozet and then around the world. Right? Begin at home. Support the church. Give financially. But do not end there. Expand that to others. And as I was talking to Chris a few days ago, just about supporting missionaries, you know, you can support a missionary. You could support Seth and Camilla, a different ministry. It doesn't have to be people just I know. You could support a ministry that preaches the gospel $5 a month. And something about doing that faithfully every month, you have a stake in that ministry. You can say at the end of time, Lord, all the people that Billy Graham Evangelistic, Evangelistic Association, who they reached out to, I had a little part in that because I gave five, ten dollars a month to them. And I was talking with one missionary brother, and he was saying how there's a guy who's my age, who's 25, and for about ten years, so he's 15, but you know back then, he's been supporting this missionary brother ever since he was 15 years old. Five, ten dollars a month. It speaks volumes to do something. It doesn't need to be $100 a month, $200 here and there. Just do something little. Start somewhere. But partner with those who are preaching the gospel faithfully. How is your wallet? Then lastly, are you praying for gospel opportunities? Are you praying for these opportunities? Pray for courage. Pray for wisdom. And most of all, pray for love for the lost. Sometimes we might think, you know, I just, I just need a little more courage. Then I'll know what to say. Then I'll be bold and step out into the streets or step out to my neighbor or to my family member who needs to hear the message of salvation. The, the greatest thing that you need is love. Pray for love for the lost. Pray for open doors. 
pray for softened hearts. Church, we are called to work hard while we wait. We are called to steward what He has given us. More specifically, we are called to steward the greatest treasure that He has given us here on earth. That's the gospel message. How are you investing it? How are you investing it? Let's pray. And then we'll close with the doxology. In our helpless estate, Father, we thank you that you did not leave us, that you sent your Son on mission to preach, to teach, to save us, to die for us, to rise on the, from the grave. We thank you for those of us here today who are Christians. We thank you for that sweet salvation that we hold in our hands and that we hold in our hearts. There are so many people around us, both saved and not, who need encouragement from the gospel. Would you please help us to steward this gift well? That you'll help us to use our mouths to speak it verbally. May our hands and feet do good works of charity, of compassion. And may our wallets, may we put our money where our mouth is and support ministries and missionaries for spreading the gospel around the world. Help us to be faithful, Lord. Holy Spirit, please help us to be faithful. Apart from you, we waste our time, we labor in vain. But we know with you, as Philippians 4.13 tells us, that with you we can do all things. Please strengthen us, please help us. Please forgive us when we fail. Please lift us back up so that we can walk on the path you've called us to. It's only by your power that we'll succeed, Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and commit these things to you. Amen.